This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Broadfin. My guest today is Lori Lambert. She's the author of Comrade Sister, Caribbean Feminist Revisions of the Grenadian Revolution, published by University of Virginia Press in 2020. The book revisits the Grenadian Revolution through novels and essays by writers including Merle Collins, Dionne Brand, George Lamming, and others. Lambert's attention to feminist perspectives helps us rethink everything we thought we knew about this revolution. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Lori. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Um, so let's just jump into the first question that I have. I'm really curious as to the trajectory that led you to become a scholar of the Caribbean and of Grenada in particular. Sure. Um, so when I look back at when I first decided to go to graduate school, I was actually working as a filmmaker and um, that's what I studied for undergrad and found myself sort of having writer's block and being kind of dissatisfied with what the film industry was like at the time. And literature had been one of my first loves. So I applied to go to graduate school thinking that, you know, I would maybe study like Virginia Woolf or Sylvia Plath. Like it really, at the time that I started considering graduate school, I was familiar with Caribbean literature. I'd lived in the Caribbean and and read that literature as a teenager, but I didn't know that it was really um, an area that you could um, focus on in that way for a PhD until I started looking into uh, graduate school. So I had the good luck of encountering some professors at the University of Toronto, Uzoma Isawane, um, Sarah Sally, who were teaching African and Caribbean literature. And um, through courses that I took with them before actually jumping into grad school, I realized that this was the field for me. Uh, it, it really makes sense, actually, because when you think about Grenada, uh, that is such a cinematic revolution in a lot of ways, right? So. <laughs> I don't know if you thought about it that way. Yeah, no, I mean, the grenade part of it came with a a phone call from a family friend. So my family is from Grenada, and I mentioned this in the introduction to the book. I grew up always hearing about the revolution. As you say, it, it there is something kind of cinematic about the story, you know, this um, charismatic leader and... Um, you know, ousting the old guard and then all of this community work. Um, And then finally, the U.S. invasion and the staging of that in such a small place. But it was a family friend who called me in and actually said to me, would you record my oral history? Because um, he was a teenager during the revolution. And um, as an adult, he realized that his son 
didn't know anything about it. And so he thought it would be something that he could record for his son about the experiences that he had being a teenager in Grenada during the revolution. And that this was something that he could um, share with his son who was living with him in Canada. And it was at the end of that conversation, when I got off the phone with this person, um, at this stage, I was maybe in the second year of my PhD program at NYU. And I thought, oh, this is the project. I had already been interested in Maurice Bishop's speeches, and I was thinking about questions around masculinity. And uh, it dawned on me at that point that there were a lot more stories to be told beyond the political speeches. And so that's really how I um, latched onto this as a project. Oh, that's fascinating. That's a sort of really sideways introduction into it, right? Um, but so you're pushing against a narrative, a particular narrative of the revolution. You make that pretty clear in the introduction. I wonder if you can walk us through that narrative that you're pushing against and, and, and tell us a little bit why, what's wrong with that narrative? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the kind of common, there are a couple of common narratives about Grenada, depending on where you're positioned. You know, if you're positioned in the United States, then the narrative is that it was this um, socialism run amok and that there were these um, communist thugs sort of taking over the island and forcing the Grenadian people um, to become some sort of version of Cuba against their will. Right. And so that's the kind of narrative that was promoted by um, the Reagan administration and um, was the justification for the um, invasion of Grenada or part of the justification. And then um, the other another sort of common narrative that I think is also um, lacking in in nuance, if not incorrect is one that you might hear if if your position is in Grenada and that is that there's this was a power struggle between the two leaders uh, at the very top of the revolution structure and that would have been Maurice Bishop who was the prime minister and Bernard Cord who was the deputy prime minister and at one time the very closest friend um, of Maurice Bishop and so that narrative suggests that um, Cord was the more hardline um, communist and that Bishop was more a type of democratic socialist and that it's this power struggle at the end that leads to the collapse of the revolution. So the issue that I have with both of those narratives is that they they both kind of move from the beginning of the revolution to the end of the revolution, and they don't consider much of what happened in the four and a half years of the process, and they don't really consider the revolution a process that involved the Grenadian people. And for me, reading the literature of Caribbean women, Grenadian women, Trinidadian Canadian women, um, and then here I'm talking about Merle Collins and Dion Brand and also Joan Purcell. It really gives you an idea of how the Grenadian people on the ground took ownership of the revolution and wanted to shape it in their own way. And that 
um, if we're only paying attention to what happened at the level of the leadership, and if we're only paying attention to the sort of Cold War rhetoric around competing ideologies of, you know, socialism, communism, capitalism, then we're kind of missing the actual story. And we're also dismissing the agency of the Grenadian people who are very active in shaping this revolution. So even more pointed than that is really the very first sentence of the book where you say, what would it mean to reimagine the Grenada revolution with women at the center? How did you arrive at that as a starting place? The framework around gender came as I was revising from a dissertation to book. And it's when I really sat down with this material and realized that the arguments I was making and the sort of voices that were most central to um, my reading of the revolution were um, those of women. So um, Merle Collins is writing and the protagonists in her novels and the sort of voices in her poetry were primarily these voices of women who were um, rural or working class women, um, not sort of positioned in the government in any kind of way, but who had really strong ideas about um, what revolution was for and what they wanted in a revolution, what they were willing to do um, to help a revolution. And, and also they were very clear about um, what the pitfalls of revolution were. Right. And, you know, I I found that that kind of um, feminist positioning was also really present in Dion Brand's work. Um, and again, women's voices, rural women, working class women in Brand's case, also queer women and sort of diasporic activists who are on the margins of any kind or just not even considered by the political leadership, but who are um, really strongly embodying a kind of uh, revolutionary consciousness. And um, so it just became apparent to me that this was like the missing story, that the dominant narratives of the revolution were all about this kind of masculinity and posturing. And this is a common thread in um, Caribbean politics, right? The sort of charismatic male leader. Um, but that the work, a lot of the work on the ground was being done by women, but also the critiques of the revolution that would have helped to perhaps prolong the process or um, strengthen the revolution. These critiques for me, in, in any case, in the materials that I was looking at were coming primarily from women. So I want to get into the details of all of these writers that you mentioned and others as well in just a little bit. But first, I also want to sort of bring up a, um, a theme that you've mentioned just briefly, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. So this thread um, running through, which I, I think is really fascinating, of acknowledging the violence of colonialism and imperialism and the violence of revolution against it, right? Like So that tension sort of runs throughout all of the chapters, I think, and that's really an important way to think about revolution, especially since, you know, the Caribbean has so many of them and, and there's, there's room to think about them that way. So, but how does that relate that, that kind of theme, that tension, how does it relate to your choice of method? How does literary analysis, excuse me, help us 
with that particular set of ideas. The question of, of violence and the repetition of violence, both in um, colonialism and in revolution in response to colonialism was really foregrounded for me in the literary analysis because um, there were just a lot of tropes of repetition in the literature itself. And that's actually how I started to come to this question of, revolu- of um, revolution and repetition and to sort of push on that a little bit about why is there this sort of repetition, like what, what's happening here um, in the structure of these texts. So one of the ways that this became really apparent for me was, um, first of all, that writers like Brandon Collins wrote about the revolution in multiple genres, um, novels, poems. And they kept writing about it. So there was a kind of um, what I describe in the book as a sort of literary repetition compulsion. That was one part of it. And then the other part of it was that the structure that some of this work took was such that they would not necessarily, you know, the texts like Merle Collins's Angel, she doesn't start with the revolution. She actually starts with um, the 1950s and the anti-colonial movement led by Eric Gary. And so her novel is showing at the structural level, the similarities between the kind of oppression that Grenadians were facing in the 1950s and the ways in which a sort of charismatic leader um, came up, you know, through the ranks in order to help Grenadians resist that oppression. But um, simultaneously, the ways in which that leader was corrupted by the power that he held. And we get all of that sort of story of, you know, that earlier generation before we get to the later generation coming up in the 70s and early 80s with the Grenada Revolution. And so we're able to see what were the similarities between these two radical movements, um, what's different. And so this is where I'm kind of thinking through this idea that um, we have this violence and colonialism, but then we also have built into revolution, a kind of violence. And um, women tended to be their sort of marginalized folks tended to be the ones who bore the brunt of that violence that came with revolution. And I guess part of the argument for me is that um, there are ways in which revolutionaries uh, and the sort of revolutionary project is as much as it's resisting colonialism, it's still deeply influenced by the structures of and history of colonialism in the region. And so, you know, that part of that violence of colonialism gets wrapped up in revolution as a response to colonialism. What's interesting about that is that you're taking this revolution that many people have described as very brief, right? It's always sort of 1979 to 1983 and that's it. But really what you're showing is that there's a much longer history in which this is embedded. And it seems to me one of the um, one of the arguments that you make, for example, in, uh, with Angel, with Merle Collins's book, is um, is the way that history is kind of located generationally, and how generations um, are really important part of this story, right? And 
So I was wondering if you can talk about the relationship between those two a little bit. Um, yeah, so generations, um, Merle Collins, I think, has, has dealt with this so beautifully because her texts are kind of always about um, a conversation between generations. And uh, within that conversation, the sense of possibility. And the kind of possibility that I think she writes about is this idea that each generation will learn from and benefit from knowledge of the previous generation's struggles. And so for her, I thought it was really instructive that she wasn't going to start a story about the Grenada Revolution in the 1970s, but she was going to help us understand as readers what sort of shaped not only the political leaders who are driving the revolution, but what has shaped the history of this island, of this land, right, uh, of this nation? What has shaped its history that would make it necessary for a revolution of this type in the 1970s um, and, and give the revolution a certain kind of, of shape? And, you know, what what about this history would cause the people of Grenada to respond to the revolution in this way, which at the time, you know, the response was overwhelmingly positive. You know, now we see a kind of continuation of what conversation or lack thereof between generations can do, because I think that um, if you were to talk to Grenadians today, responses to the revolution would be very mixed. And there is, um, you know, the violence with the way that the revolution ended is really complicated the way that we um, remember it. The kinds of conversations that have happened and the conversations that are not happening between um, the older generation and the younger generation today are also shaping how people remember this time and, and what they know about it. So um, I think that her work has really, has really helped shape um, a kind of framework for how the entire Caribbean can think about um, the political legacies of revolution. And it's sort of, um, by framing it generationally, and kind of taking the emphasis off simply, you know, the leadership, I think there's a lot more room to have a sort of nuanced view of political movements. So there's room for, you know, an older generation to say, here are the things that we tried to do. Here are the areas where we fell short or where we failed. Here are some of the pitfalls. And um, there's room for, you know, a younger generation to look back on those things and to decide, you know, what do we want to take on from this past and what are the things that we need to improve on or to sort of um, move beyond? Um, so uh, male writers do make an appearance in the book, right? You have a chapter on George Lamming, Nepal, Derek Walcott and Andrew Sulky, And you make the point that each one of them is working within constraints, right, of kind of loyalty some, to some colonial institutions. And that's also a sort of generational way, like this is this is the generation of these sort of transitional um, literary figures, right? So how, how do they relate to uh, the question of gender? How do you how do you fit them into to a book about about, you know, 
putting women at the center? Yeah, so this was a question. um, First of all, it was always a question that one of my uh, mentors always had for me when I was working on this project. Like, what are the main, so great, you're working on Collins, you're working on brand, but like, what do the major writers have to say about this? And there's, so there's already like a politics behind that question, right? Like, what, but yeah, this is great. But like, what did Walcott say? Did Brathwaite say anything? Um, so there was that kind of thing happening. Um, but then when I was, you know, able to sort of go to that material, you, for me, what really became apparent was that, um, you know, and maybe Salki is sort of like the exception here. There were, they were stuck, like, so Walcott's essay on the revolution, he never finishes it. He doesn't publish it. He's supposed to be writing this essay. Um, and it was, um, it was just forestalled and he has, you know, drafts in the archives and you see that he's, you know, working through all these ideas and then just like crossing them out. But what I think, um, the thing that he was stuck on was this idea that revolution is supposed to be this sort of narrative of victory. And so here we have something that appeared what at the time of his writing in, in 1983 and 84 to be a failure. And so what do we do with that? And what do you do with this sort of charismatic leader? And so there's a tension there where he is, um, he's critical of Bishop, but he's also critical of the U.S. invasion. And um, it's almost like an equation that he's not able to solve. And that's the reason why um, his essay, Good Old Heart of Darkness, just kind of, you know, he has several drafts, but it, it never makes it to the public. Um, Lamming's work. Um, so Lamming, um, I analyze an essay that he um wrote well he gave it as a speech during the revolution and then also um and some other remarks that he gave at a memorial service for the revolution and so here again we see that um he's sort of stuck in the capitalist communist framework of you know an understanding of the revolution where there is like one version of the left as opposed to like the multiple versions that were actually part of the revolution and so for him the choice is to um paint bishop as a saint and to um to critique the rest of the government that was involved um in very strong, sort of very strong terms. And so again, there, I think that, you know, that was important in that moment, that right in the aftermath of the revolution, and they're sort of working through um, the tensions of the revolution. But I think the common thread here is that for them, the genre is tragedy. This revolution has been a tragedy, and the end of the revolution is a tragedy, and that's sort of like the full stop. And and for Naipaul, naturally, you know, it was a bad idea from the very from the very beginning. And for him, in fact, it's just like they were just playing. This wasn't even a real revolution. This was just rhetoric. It was just words, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Go ahead. So no, I was going to say, Salki is, you know, the one who I think sees 
still some room for possibility, which I think is interesting. And so in, in his narrative, there's a kind of redo um, that happens several years later. It comes to a similarly violent ending, though. So it's it's not resolved in any in a, in a particularly different way, except that um, he does imagine women as central leaders in this sort of um, retry that the revolution gets in his imagining. And there's so, and there's also a kind of ambiguity in the end of his novel about. Um, what really happened, sorry, the end of his short story about what really happens to um, those figures. So in these, um, in all of these, it seems like one of the things that's so interesting is the question of audience, right? Um, And it really comes out with the Walcott article that you, that you sort of trace in the New York Review Books archives, right? Because um, it's very clear that he's, He's stuck in this sort of defensive position, right? He doesn't want to overly um, critique the 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 revolution because um, you know the the this the sort of the judgment of the rest of the world is upon it, and and he is a little bit critical of the U.S. But you, it's so interesting how you see that develop and the pushback that uh, the New York Review of Books editor has for him. Right. And, you know, the way that 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 sort of gets stuck. So I, I was really interested in that as a as a method. Um, how, how was that for you writing that that piece and, and sort of thinking about, you know, something that didn't get published? Yeah, well, so I mean, I loved I loved working with that material. It's the Walcott's archives um, at the University of Toronto are really um, fabulous. And the folks at the Fisherware Library, really great to work with. That essay, and there was a, you know, looking at that essay, there were some other materials there that he had on Grenada, but that essay was the most um, interesting piece to me because of all the kind of editorial um, feedback that he was getting and how he was sort of responding to it, which I think kind of highlighted, you know, New York Review of Books is is not some kind of like right-wing publication. In fact, I think they would think of themselves as sort of left-leaning or or progressive. But the sort of feedback that Walcott was getting, I think, showed the limits of that politics, that particular politics, when it came to um, views of the Caribbean, right? And so this is about, you know, an American readership and how they are interpreting the Caribbean space. so that was a lot of just a lot of fun to kind of go through the different drafts to analyze not only what gets left in but what he wrote and then was dissatisfied with and to sort of think through um you know I guess what I was thinking through is what were the questions that he couldn't resolve like what exactly was um causing this issue for him. And I think that, you know, as, as much as he's somebody who would have had a lot of respect for Naipaul, I think he was very clearly not wanting to come out in the way that Naipaul had, um, just dismissing everything out of hand. That's not what he was going to do. But he seemed to have wanted a conversation that was going to be um, perhaps too nuanced to be had with an American audience about leftist politics in the Caribbean. 
And um, there was another really um, interesting piece in his um, papers, which was a poem about Grenada and just his anguish at how Grenada was being mispronounced as Grenada in all of the um, television show, like the news shows and things like that, and just how it irked him. Um, so I thought that that was also kind of interesting just to see. So how does incorporating the perspectives of queer Black women shift the register of how we might talk and think about the revolution? I think what Graham helps us to realize is that the positioning of queer Black women helps us to better understand the oppressive structures of colonialism. And, you know, her work really points to um, some of the kind of weaknesses or blind spots of the Black Power Movement, um, which I think of the revolution as being at the tail end of the Black Power Movement, um, but also to the blind spots of revolution. And, you know, we see this in the Grenada Revolution, we see this in the Cuba Revolution, kind of like what is to be done with um, people of diverse sexualities, right? And there's a way in which these groups are marginalized, even within these movements that are supposed to be so freedom producing. And so I think that, you know, Brand's work really helps to highlight um, in a way that you know, this sort of issue in a way that is, you know, it doesn't throw out the entire idea of revolution, but it says, if we're going to do this, can we do it in as inclusive a way as possible? Or, you know, how do we think about the different sites of revolutionary action um, or the different kind of revolutionary perspectives um, that may not necessarily um, be part of a kind of dominant framework. It seems to me that she also opens up other spaces, transnational spaces. Uh, There's a lot of movement in her writing, it seems like exile, return, migration. And so how how does that sort of also expand the idea of revolution? Yeah, there's like, there are all these beautiful itineraries in her work, I think, you know, movement between Toronto and um, Trinidad, Grenada, Cuba. And I think for her, it's um, this framework of diaspora is really important, um, that we have both the African diaspora and the Caribbean diaspora. And I think we see in Brand's work the sort of possibilities, um, at least in the framework of, you know, the relationship between art and politics, but the possibilities of, um, you know, federation. And so, you know, not imagining federation exactly as the the sort of political framework um, from the 1950s um, into the early 60s, but actually thinking about um, how these revolutions are connected to each other. So, you know, in her writing, particularly in her essays, she's really clear, again, picking up this generational idea that her first exposure to revolution is the Cuban revolution and listening as a child to her family's conversations about the Cuban revolution, imagining her uncle taking a boat from Trinidad to Cuba, just to see what's happening. You know, what are the possibilities for us as Caribbean people? And then connecting that to her own decision to leave Toronto and the work that she was doing with the black power movement there. Um, to work in Grenada where she thought there would have been um, 
a better kind of sense of possibility or just space for her as a queer woman um, versus the sort of masculinist Black power organizing community that was happening in Toronto. So there's really this idea then that we're moving away from the nation and thinking more about the region and how our histories and our politics are connected. And I think that the the emphasis on diaspora, the emphasis on um, what Glissant would call like errancy in her work is really important. And at the end, you throw us readers for a little bit of a loop. We can't close without sort of talking about Joan Purcell, who is politically conservative and an evangelical Christian. And um, so how does she make her way into this book? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that there was, you know, there's a kind of untidiness about including Joan Purcell's work here that I wanted to embrace, because here's somebody who is, you know, living in Grenada, you know, born born and raised in Grenada, knows the members of the revolutionary leadership personally, counts some of them as friends, and um, becomes a politician herself because of the revolution. Her first kind of big political position is in the um, interim government that forms after the U.S. invasion. And it's after that that she enters electoral politics. And so... Um, one of the last chapters in the book is analyzing her memoir, Memoirs of a Woman in Politics, and the subtitle to that book is Spiritual Struggle. And so here I wanted to think about, um, you know, the Caribbean feminism in this book is not a kind of essentializing framework that can only include women. Um, I think that there is a way in which Purcell's writing, um, she's a Caribbean woman, but her politics are uh, in many ways counter to the Caribbean feminist um, politics that I see in the work of uh, Brand or Collins. But her voice is still um, hugely important because I think it highlights for us, again, this question of what are we talking about when we're talking about this revolution? Are we simply talking about the beginning of the revolution and the end of the revolution? Or are we taking the full four and a half year process at the very least, and even thinking beyond that into the longer trajectories of radicalism to which this revolution was connected. And so I found um, Purcell's representations really fascinating because she specifically focuses on her fear at the beginning of the revolution and then returns to this fear and the violence uh, at the end of the revolution and sort of glosses over some of the ways in which she um, worked with or you know, tried to work with the revolutionary government um, when they were in power. Um, and it's a kind of disavowal of the revolution that I think it's important to talk about because I think it's an important way in which Grenadians experience the revolution today. I think there, you know, is a large sector of the population who was um, traumatized by the way that the revolution ended, and rightly so. It was extremely violent, and um, we are doing a disservice to ourselves if we are not paying attention to um, what that traumatic violence produces. And so in her work, what I identify it as a kind of um, post-revolutionary 
over-identification with neoliberalism. So, you know, this way of staking claims, we are not this, we are not socialism um, in any way. And we are a, you know, capitalist society. We are, you know, in line with everything the United States would, would want us to be doing and that this is the only way to be safe. You know, and according to her argument, it's also the Christian way, right? And, um, and we um, the four and a half years of that revolutionary process. And so that was fascinating to me. Um, but then I was also fascinated by the fact that she was then positioned as the person who um, makes the decision that the Grenada 17, those um, former revolutionaries who were imprisoned for the assassination of Maurice Bishop and his colleagues, Purcell makes the decision that they're not to be um, executed and that they are to live. They're to have their death sentences commuted. And I thought that um, that idea of mercy that she brings forth, you know, and she says that she was called the minister of mercy um, in her decision, that it was interesting that this decision came down to a woman and that it was um, a woman who realized that to allow those executions to move forward would have only further traumatized Grenadians and Caribbean folks who were watching this, this situation unfold. And so I think that she, you know, makes a decision that leaves us with the possibility of more communication between the generations about what happened. You know, if those folks had been executed, their stories would have been gone. And now um, they've actually been released from prison. Several of them have written um, books or multiple books sort of talking about their side or um, what they what they uh, would have done differently. And that kind of dialogue, as difficult as it is right now, I think is really important. And so, you know, Purcell, whatever you think of it, role in making that possible. Yeah, I, I really, um, I think it's very important the way that you're expanding and really sort of considering all kinds of voices and perspectives to think about not just this revolution, but all maybe revolutions in general and historical processes as well. So um, I really, I think that's, that's a really very significant sort of contribution. Um, I, I have one last question about the the way that you close the book and you close, I guess, getting back to film, this really fascinating image from the film, um, the, the documentary that you describe. And the, the image is of Ma Bishop, who's the mother of Maurice Bishop, who upon learning that her son had been arrested, called up the mother of Bernard Cord, right? Who are these people who are supposed to have been, you know, in, in conflict and which, with whom he was in conflict at the time to discuss the dispute, right? It's sort of mothers calling each other, what, what's going on with our sons, right? <laughs> and so, so, I mean, I can think of lots of reasons why I would want to close with this episode, but I, I'm curious to hear yours. What do, you get, what do you get from it and why close the book with it? So I love the story with Ma Bishop and um, Mrs. Cord. So for one thing, it reminded us that these families were friends. And I loved the sense that, um, 
you know, whatever kind of political authority or military authority, there was, this was a crisis of authority at the end of the revolution, but that there was a sense in these elder women that they could sort of pull rank in a particular way by talking to each other about what was happening. And um, that there was a kind of model there for how to proceed in this kind of conflict and that they provided it, which was to get on the phone and talk to each other. And if you listen to... Um, kind of witness statements about what was happening at the end of the revolution. It is like in those final days, one sort of miscommunication after the other and a failure of people to really get on the phone and talk to each other. There was a loss of trust. There was also just a lot of young people who were exhausted. If we think about how old these folks were, in the leadership. They're in their late 30s, early 40s, and a lot of the folks that they're working with are in their 20s. And they are um, just running on fumes at this point. And I think that leads to a lot of really um, questionable and, and fatal kind of decision making. And so I think really, you know, to end the book in this way is to think about um, the pain of some of the women who are left behind. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you so much.